All right, good morning, everyone. So as Keith said, after our three-month hiatus, we're back in the uh, wild and fascinating book of Revelation. And last week we looked at chapter 6, where Jesus, represented by a slain lamb, unsealed six seals on a scroll bound by seven seals. And we talked about how that scroll represents the unfolding of God's plan for history. Uh, It represents the fulfillment of the scriptures and the fulfillment of God's promises in the scriptures. And last week we looked at how when those seals were opened, some scary stuff happened, right? As the seals are open, there's conquest and war and famine and disease and death uh, represented by the four horsemen, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And then when the sixth seal opens, things get really crazy. It says that the stars fall down from the sky to earth and uh, every mountain falls out of place and the sun goes black. And we talked about how these frightening images represent turmoil in the earth, Uh, political turmoil, social turmoil, natural disasters. Basically, they represent the things that we count on for stability in human societies becoming unstable, right? And we talked about how what that means is that between Jesus' resurrection and the end of the age, Between Jesus' resurrection and the fulfillment of the kingdom of God, there's going to be a lot of difficult stuff, a lot of suffering, a lot of trials. And we talked about how when you look throughout history, you can see that, right? There's wars, there's famines, there's disease, plagues. Kingdoms rise and fall. But we talked about how these things should not surprise us, and they shouldn't fill us with terror, right? Right? Because, in spite of how it might appear, Revelation reminds us that the Lamb is on the throne. That ultimately, He is in control. You know, anything else that we look for, for our ultimate hope and stability, it will collapse. It will fall like those stars falling to the earth. But Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom that He is building, it will not fall. It's the one thing that will last forever. Now, if you want to follow along in your own Bible, this week we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 7. Now, where we left off last week, the sixth seal had just been open, and there's turmoil everywhere, and, and uh, we're told that people tried to hide from this turmoil and this chaos, and they called out from the mountains, and they said, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Now, chapter 7, what we're about to read, is an answer to that question, who can stand? Who can survive this turmoil? Who can survive when all the sources of stability have collapsed around them? Who can stand before a holy God and have peace? Who can do that when there's no place to hide, when they're totally and completely exposed, every thought, every deed laid bare before a holy God? Who can stand? Who can do that? 
You may have been hoping that this week we would find out what happens when the seventh seal opens, right? Because where we left off, there was still one left. Unfortunately, if you're hoping for that, we're not going to get to that this week. Uh, That's not until chapter 8. Because chapter 7 is this interlude between the sixth and the seventh seals, and it is a vision that answers that question, who can stand? Now, I'm going to read the whole chapter, and then we'll go back and look at it more closely. But before we do that, let's pray. Lord, uh, we acknowledge together that this is a tough book. Um, It's tough uh, because of all the uh, images of of warning and of wrath. Uh, But it's also tough just because it's confusing. The imagery is confusing. The symbolism is confusing. Lord, I pray that as we look at this passage today, you would grant us better understanding, that you would deepen our insight, and that your spirit would speak to us uh, through these powerful visions. Lord, we open ourselves up to receive from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. After this, I looked... And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. 
For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. All right, well, if you're anything like me, you've got some questions. Your head might be spinning a little bit. So let's go back to the top. John writes, After this, I saw four angels. Now, we have to be careful, because when we read that, we might be inclined to think, oh, this is telling us what happens after the sixth seal is opened. But if we think that way, we end up with some real problems. For example, these angels are described as holding back winds, right? Which is a symbol of God restraining chaos and turmoil from coming upon the earth. Uh, But when the sixth seal was opened just a few verses ago, there was plenty of chaos and turmoil, right? Here the winds are being restrained, but right before this, the storm was raging, right? Stars falling from the sky, every mountain falling out of place. So it's best not to think of chapter 7 as coming chronologically after chapter 6, As I already said, the best way to understand this is as an answer to the question that was asked in the last vision, who can stand? So, when John says, after this I saw, he's not saying this is the next chronological event. He's saying this is the next vision that I received. This is the next thing that I saw. Okay? And this is important because as we read Revelation... We have to keep in mind that John's visions are not necessarily chronological. If we think of them as strictly chronological, we can end up tying ourselves in a lot of knots. It can be very confusing. So keep that in mind. This is just one example. Now, before we go any further, I want us to think about the significance of the angels holding back the winds. The four corners of the earth is a way of saying north, south, east, and west, basically every direction. And it's saying that these angels are holding back chaos and turmoil from coming from every direction. At God's command, these angels are preventing judgment from coming upon the earth. And God will not release them from preventing that judgment until the right time. And as I was reflecting on this image this week, it occurred to me that this could be representing something significant. We have a tendency to often think of God's wrath as God just attacking the earth, right? But what if it's more accurate to think of God's wrath not as his attack, but as his withdrawal? The imagery here seems to be supporting that idea, right? Here God is holding back the judgment. He's restraining these winds, but a time will come when he stops restraining. So an analogy for this might be like water in a dam. Our sin creates this flood of negative consequences in the world. Um, But God is actively at work restraining that flood of negative consequences in our lives and in the world. His grace works like this dam holding back that flood of consequences. And judgment is what happens when God moves out of the way, when he stops actively shielding the world from the consequences of our sin. 
So I don't know about you, but for me, it's helpful to think about God's wrath in those terms. Now, there's two main parts to this vision, right? The 144,000 and the great multitude in white robes. And each of these parts is answering that question, who can stand? Who can stand? So let's talk about the 144,000. They are described as servants of God who have a seal on their foreheads, right? A seal from God. Now, remember, I've I've given us three interpretive principles uh, when studying the visions in Revelation. And the first one is Revelation speaks to us through symbols. Revelation speaks to us through symbols. I, I have been studying this book a lot, and I don't know any serious commentator who thinks that this passage is literally saying that people will have a mark on their foreheads. Okay, I don't know anybody who thinks that. The forehead seal is a symbol, and it is a symbol of belonging to God. Belonging to God. And what this is saying is that God will seal those who belong to him and protect them from the turmoil when that dam breaks and the consequences of sin run rampant throughout the world. Now, that doesn't mean that those who are sealed will not experience any suffering when that dam breaks. In fact, hopefully you remember last week when the fifth seal opened, there were martyrs crying out, right? And the martyrs were told, be patient, because before things are made right with the world, there's going to be more martyrs. There's going to be more people who die because they're faithful to Jesus. So this seal cannot be an assurance of physical safety, that no harm will ever come to your body. But what this seal is, is an assurance of ultimate safety, ultimate security, of salvation. Right? It is a promise, a seal of protection, that despite the, 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 the craziness that is raging around you, your soul is safe. You will be okay. Now, the question we need to ask is, how literally are we supposed to take this description of those who are sealed? Well, let's try an exercise here. Let's just take this literally. Let's assume the 144,000, this is literal. Here's what that means. The people who are sealed and protected... Obviously, there's exactly 144,000 of them. They are all ethnically Jewish, right? And each tribe of Israel will be equally represented. Each will contribute 12,000 people. Now, this is skipping ahead a little bit, but in chapter 14, verse 4, we're told a little bit more about these 144,000. We're told that they did not defile themselves with women. Okay, so if we take it literally and go a little further, they're all men, right? And they're virgins. So, if we take this literally, if you are female, if you are a Gentile, if you're not a virgin, or all three of those things, you are not one of the 144,000 sealed and protected by God. And I don't know about you, but something about that doesn't sound right, right? Revelation reveals truth through symbols. The literal meaning doesn't make sense. So now we have to ask, is there a symbolic meaning 
that makes sense. And when we think of this number symbolically, things fall into place, okay? Now, 144,000 is a number that has a lot of symbolic significance because 12 is a number that has symbolic significance throughout the Bible. And 144,000 is a set of 12 12s, right? It's 12 times 12,000. Now, why is 12 significant? Well, of course, there are 12 tribes of Israel. There are 12 disciples. And throughout Scripture, 12 is a number that represents completeness. Completeness. So, if you have a group of people that are all sealed by God, and they are 12 times 12, this number of completeness, what does this number represent? It represents the complete family of God. The complete holy community, the whole church. That's what the 144,000 represents. Now, okay, I recognize that what I'm saying may go against what you've heard in the past. Maybe for years you've been taught a system for interpreting Revelation, and what I just said violates that entire system, and your alarm bells are going off, and you're like, this guy is off his rocker. If that's you, may I remind us of the second principle for interpreting Revelation, which is that it's hard and we need to be humble. What I am offering to you is my absolute best guess. Not, it's more than a guess, okay? It's the best work, it's the best thing that I can offer you with a seminary education, hours of, of study and prayer and coming to the text in humility, and this is what I have to offer. Could I be wrong? Yeah, I could be wrong. Maybe I am. But I ask that you admit the same, right? <laughs> and hear me out, okay, what I have to offer. Here. And if at the end you decide, eh, I just don't buy it, that's okay. That's all right. Okay, but I believe quite strongly that the 144,000, not literal, and it is a symbol of the entire people of God. Now, if we think of the 144,000 as symbolizing the entire people of God, what does that tell us about the people of God? That's the next question. A symbol represents something, right? So what does this represent? Well, I have three things for us to think about that this represents. Number one, it reveals that the church's roots are Jewish. The church's roots are Jewish. You know, we, we may not be ethnically Jewish, but if we have been sealed by God, we are spiritual descendants of the Jews. Our history is the history that goes all the way back to Abraham and to his son Isaac and to his son Jacob and to his 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. And that means that the promises that were made to them, the long-term promises that were made to them, are promises for us now. In a spiritual sense, we are the descendants of the tribes of Israel. What God started through those tribes is fulfilled in the church fulfilled in the followers of Jesus, okay? What else does the symbol of the 144,000 reveal? It reveals that the church is a spiritual army. The church is a spiritual army. Now, why is that? Well, in the past, when Israel went to war, each tribe would send a battalion of 1,000 people. So what we have here is each tribe sending 12 battalions 
of people. So there's a military connotation here to the symbol, especially when we recognize that all these 144,000 are men, right? And in those days, men were the only ones who went to war. So there's a military connotation, and, and what that suggests is that we are supposed to think of the church like an army, God's army. Now, we're not a violent army. We wage war the way Jesus did, not like a lion, but like a lamb. But we are an army because we do battle against the forces of darkness. We live in a war zone, and when we're part of the church, we don't run from the battle. We don't draft dodge. We get in the fight. And the weapons that we use are the same weapons that Jesus used. The word of God, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, sacrificial love, even to the point of death. Those are our weapons, and we are in an army that is at war. And then finally, the symbol of the 144,000 is telling us that the church refuses to worship anyone or anything other than God. The church refuses to worship anyone or anything other than God. Now, why do I say that? Well, remember that verse from chapter 14. We, I moved ahead uh, to a point where it talks a little bit more about the 144,000, and it says, The 144,000 did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. Now, remember, think of this symbolically. This is not saying that every married man is impure in God's eyes for being married. Here, sexual activity is being used as a metaphor for idolatry. This is a metaphor that comes out up throughout Scripture. Um, when people engage in idolatry, it is spiritual adultery. It is, it is compared to illicit sexual activity. A person who bows down to the Roman emperor and worships the Roman emperor commits spiritual adultery in God's eyes. And so what this verse is saying is that the church is a spiritual army that does not commit adultery. It is faithful to Jesus. The church is not in an open relationship with Jesus. The church is not polyamorous. The church is faithful to Jesus. Now, you might still be like, ah, Ryan, I'm not sure that the 144,000 symbolizes the whole church. I don't know if you sold me on that. But here's one more thing to consider that might push you over the edge. Did you notice that John says that he hears the number of the 144,000? He hears it. So John hears that the servants of God are 144,000 ethnic Jews from the 12 tribes. That's what John hears, but what does John see? When he looks, when he turns and he looks, he sees a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. So John hears about a Jewish remnant, but he sees a countless multitude of people that are as ethnically diverse as possible. You might remember that in chapter 5, something similar happened, right? John heard that the Lion of Judah had triumphed representing Jesus. He heard about a lion, but when he looked at the throne of God, what did he see? He saw a slain lamb. 
right? And we did a whole sermon on the significance of that uh, back in November. The Jews were expecting a Messiah to come who would be like a lion, who would be this military conqueror. But when, when the Messiah came, he didn't lead a violent uprising, right? He didn't destroy his enemies. He, he, he died for his enemies. He conquered. He was a conqueror, but he did it in a way that nobody expected. He did it through the sacrificial love shown on the cross. And I think John's vision here in chapter 7 represents another surprise. Right? The Jews had expected that just a small remnant of Jews would survive God's judgment. And that's what John hears, a remnant of Jews will be sealed and protected. But then he looks and he sees something far bigger than a Jewish remnant, right? A countless, radically diverse multitude of people worshiping around the throne. Surprise! 144,000 represents something much bigger. You know, sometimes when we hear about something, it sounds great, but then when we actually experience it, it's a letdown, right? Um, Every day we're bombarded with advertisements, and most of them are an attempt to make a product sound better than it actually is. But this vision is saying that's not the case with biblical prophecies. The fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies is bigger and better than the people expected. Well, how much bigger and better? That's the next question, right? Well, John says that this is a great multitude that no one can count. Now, I don't know uh, what John considers to be an uncountable number, but there's another place in Revelation where John notices um, troops from the beast's army, and he says that there's 200,000 thousands, which is 200 million. So apparently 200 million is a countable number in Revelation. So whatever this number is, whatever this multitude is, it must dwarf 200 million. I don't know, maybe I'm taking that a little too literally, but it makes sense to me. You know, if you think that the redeemed people of God is just some puny remnant of people who all got their theology just right and lived just, just, just perfectly, then you need to pay close attention to this vision. The sealed and redeemed people of God are not a little club. Okay. This is a great multitude. And let's take a moment also to appreciate the diversity of the church. Right? Every nation, tribe, people, and language. Heaven is not a place of white supremacy. It's not a place of any ethnic supremacy. It's a place of God supremacy. Right? And where God is supreme, no ethnicity is. If you don't like being around people who are different than you, or talk differently than you, or have different culture than you, you should ask God to change your heart, because your eternal home is going to be diverse. It's a good idea to start working on that now. Now remember, this whole vision is answering the question, who can stand? Who can survive when all the sources of stability collapse? Who can stand before a holy God and have peace when there is nowhere to hide? 
Nothing to cling to but God himself. And so far, the answer, who can stand, is this. An enormous multitude of people from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue, a people whose spiritual ancestry descends from Israel, God's spiritual army, who refuse to bow to idols. But, okay, so this is all true, but there's another answer, an even more direct answer to the question of who can stand, and it comes near the end of the passage. Uh, Remember, the people in the great multitude are described as wearing white robes, and I said this last week, you can write it down, white robes symbolize purity and victory, purity and victory. Now listen again to what it says in verse 13. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? In other words, this great multitude that is regarded as pure and victorious, how are they this way? Where did they come from? And uh, John says, sir, you know. In other words, I think this is a rhetorical question and you want to answer it for me. So, you know, come on, tell me, what is it? And the elder answers, these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Who can stand? This is the answer. They have washed their robes in the blood of the lamb. Now, that's a strange image, isn't it? It doesn't make sense from a laundry perspective. (laughs) But when we recognize what the robes represent, right? Purity, forgiveness of sin, and victory. Then it makes sense. Because it is Jesus' shed blood on the cross that makes us pure. And that gives us victory. It is the sacrificial love of God that gives us victory. Victory over sin, victory over Satan and the forces of evil, victory over wicked empires that demand idolatry, victory over death. Ultimately, our victory over those things comes not from something we've done, but because of what God has done for us through Jesus. You know, one of the things that we do have to be careful about when reading this book is not to forget the real reason why we can stand. And I say that because, you know, Revelation is a heavy book and it calls us to costly discipleship, right? It calls, it calls us to be faithful to Jesus even if it means sacrificing everything. That is a, that is a heavy call, right? Now, that is a message we need to hear, but it can be an overwhelming message. And we also need to be reminded, as we hear that, that our freedom, our victory, our power over sin and evil and wicked empires is not something that we can pull off in our own strength. It's not. The victory, the power, it comes through what Jesus has done for us. It comes through God's sacrificial love poured out on our behalf. Who can stand? those whose robes have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. It's what Jesus has done that makes us clean. It's what Jesus has done that enables us to withstand the tribulation when everything around us collapses 
and goes crazy. It's what Jesus has done that makes it possible for us to have peace when there's nowhere to hide and nothing left to cling to except God himself. So the question is, have we let him wash our robes? Have we said to him, Jesus, cleanse me of my sin. Give me the victory that I can't win for myself. In a moment, we're going to do communion, and I'm going to give us an opportunity to say that to Jesus. But until then, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you shed your blood so that we could have victory, so that we could be purified. And Lord, as we read about all these scary visions and revelation, I pray that our hope would be in knowing that, Lord, that it is through you that we have the victory. It is through you that we have peace and that we can stand when everything around us collapses. Lord, may that truth uh, fill us and, and lead us and direct us every day. In Jesus' name, amen.